Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Okay. Uh, Hello, Loma Linda. All right. Great to be here. My name is uh, David Ashrick, and this is the fourth time that I've given this sermon this morning. Where's Randy at? Randy, do you do this every Sabbath? You do this every Sabbath. Okay, I don't know what he's being paid, but it should be more. (laughs) This is hard. It was, I mean, I've absolutely thoroughly loved it, but God bless you, Randy. You're a, you're a hero and a warrior. Uh, great to be here. I've had so much fun already. I had thought um, that the, the third message would be the best one. I, I kind of thought the first one was a little bit of a warm-up, a little nervous. I've never been in this church before. But it was like a 7.5, the first one. That's what I gave it. Richard gave it a better score than that, but that's what I gave it. My second one I thought was closer to an 8. It, it ramped up a little bit, and I was really hopeful that that third one was going to be an 8.5, but it was an 8 again. So I don't know where this one's going to go. We, it, we might fall off the cliff, or it might go really, really well, but it's great to be here. Uh, this presentation is part of a series, a 12-part series that I'm doing with my um, dear friends and colleagues, uh, Pastor Ty Gibson and Dr. Jeffrey Rosario. I want to plead with you... Uh, beg for you to come to all of the presentations. It's so great to see so many people here on Sabbath morning, not just in this service, but in the other three. Um, I hope that you can, insofar as it's possible for you, prioritize these meetings. And I don't say that out of any sense of self-importance, but because I know what's going to be presented here. And these ideas are literally transformative. And I'm a big New Year's person. I love New Year's. I love resolutions. I love goals. And I say that there's probably not a better way that you could start your new year than to prioritize these 12 presentations. We'll be here all week. And we're going to be developing sequentially, session upon session, some really important ideas, big ideas. But as is so often the case, uh, big ideas need to rest on a broad foundation. And so we have to have some real table-setting presentations. And to be honest, the first several presentations in the series are very much table-setting presentations. Ty's last night was excellent, very table-setting. Our presentation this morning will be similarly that way. We're going to try and lay a very broad biblical foundation so that when we start to build these amazing pieces that come later on in the series, we can really appreciate them with the full depth and and profundity that we should. And so we're going to get started here in just a moment, but I'm going to Begin with prayer, and we're going to get into this, and you're going to really love it. I I just have a strong sense that God is going to be with us here this morning. Father, be with us now as we open your word. May you open us. Lord, we come here today, different people with different circumstances, situations, different needs, different hurts. Lord, we need you to show up here in a way that transcends the merely natural. Father, your spirit needs to show up here. We don't know how to pray like we ought to pray. We We don't know what we don't know. But Father, your spirit can tailor make this one-size-fits-all message to every individual circumstance, situation, and need here. So Father, I just want to pray that you would, yes, be with me, be with my mind and my mouth, but so much more than that, Father. By your spirit, be here with all of the people. And may they hear what they need to hear. May they receive what they need to receive. And Father, may we each, before you, an audience of one, may we be transformed into the character likeness that you have carved out for us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen and amen and amen. Now, just a quick question, Randy. I didn't ask this. 
can, am I under similar time constraints here, or can I go a little longer? Okay, I've done the 30-minute version. You guys are going to get the 40-minute version, okay? All right. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear the cheers there, because that's just the way it's going to be. All right, so this, this table-setting presentation is titled Father Abraham and His Kids. Father Abraham and His Kids. And in the event that you don't want to stay awake or stay attentive for the whole presentation, I'll just tell you right up front what I'm going to say in about 30 seconds, and then you can decide whether or not you want to pay attention to the rest, okay? Here's my central thesis. On the slide here, you can see that God's covenant promise of land and descendants... I want you to say those two words with me if you would. Land and descendants. One more time, this time with more enthusiasm. Land and descendants. God's covenant promise of land and descendants to Abraham is the hinge on which the whole narrative of Scripture swings. Now, I realize that that is a very big, even some might say an audacious claim to make, but I'm going to maintain here this morning, and I'm going to make my case, that the story, that the grand theological biblical edifice that is Scripture, all 66 books and both Testaments, which we'll get to in a moment, that, that, that there is a, a hinge on which the whole story swings. And my thesis this morning is that that hinge is this Abrahamic promise of land and descendants. What is the promise, everyone? Land, land and descendants. Okay, so let's start by, by setting the table before we even set the table. And we're going to try to orient ourselves here to something that that's actually so familiar to us that we can lose track. And this is the, the case, and it's the problem, honestly, sometimes with spiritual things and with our familiarity with them, is that we lose track of the profundity and the transcendence of what we're describing. This is particularly the case if you're an inveterate follower of Jesus or a generational Christian. The longer that we've been associated with these things, they start to feel more and more like just pieces of furniture to us. No, 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 no. We have to Remember again and again that these things are amazing, they are transcendent, they are transformative, and we should, insofar as it's possible, try to recapture the wonder of the beauty of these things that we're talking about. And one such instance I want to try to do this morning. So this is a, a passage of Scripture here from Genesis 24, verse 12. This is a man named Eliezer, one of the servants of Abraham, and he's praying a prayer. And this is what he says. O oh Lord God of my master Abraham. Now let's just pause there for a moment. You'll notice that Lord is in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when you see that, it's not for emphasis sake, like you might send a text and you might put something in all caps out of anger or enthusiasm. That's not what's going on here. The capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is a translational placeholder to let you know that this is the proper name of God. Okay, it's the name of God. The problem with the name of God is that we don't know exactly how to say it or how to pronounce it, and so we have just the consonants, the Hebrew equivalent of the consonants, right? And so the translators understand this, and so they've said, Lord, but we're all to understand. This is God's name in the same way that my name is David. But if you took the vowelings out of my name, my name would be DVD. It would be unusual to call me DVD. So you, you might just say, Sir or Mr., that's effectively what the translators have done in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do, and we might not be exactly accurate in this, we're going to insert the name Yahweh for the, the name of God, and you'll see why we do that momentarily. Okay, so this is Eliezer, and he's praying, and he says, Oh, Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Now, Eliezer has been sent on an errand. The nature of this particular errand is that he's supposed to look for a bride for his uh, master's son, Isaac. And so he's like, hey, Abra uh, 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 Yahweh, 
God of my uh, master Abraham, help me on this errand. Well, the next passage is from Genesis 26, and this time Yahweh is addressing Isaac himself, and I want you to see this. And Yahweh appeared to him the same night and said, him being Isaac, I am the God of your father Abraham, do not be afraid. Okay, so, so Yahweh here shows up to, to Isaac and he says, I'm the God of your dad. So far, so good? Okay, now let's go a little further still. Genesis 28. This is him now showing up to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And this is what he says. And behold, Yahweh stood above it. It here in context is Jacob's ladder. Jacob has seen this incredible vision of a ladder that ascends all the way into the heaven and touches the earth. And after the vision has been seen and the angels ascending and descending on this, God says this to Jacob. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you are now lying, I give to you and your descendants. Notice again that recapitulation, land and descendants. We will come back to it again and again. But I want you to notice that effectively here's what he says. He says, I'm the God of your dad and your granddad. God's identification here with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is remarkable. Now let's just fast forward to the book of Exodus. So God heard their groaning. This is now the descendants of Abraham and remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. The next chapter. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, this is the one I really want to dwell on for a moment. Same chapter, but just moving forward a few verses to verses 15 and 16 of Exodus 3. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Okay, what? God here, the infinite, eternal, illimitable, spiritual God of the universe, the one true God is identifying himself. He's saying, hey, I'm the God of that guy, and I'm the God of his son, and I'm the, son of his, I'm the God of his grandson. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he doesn't just say this, you know, temporarily or serviceably. He says, this is my name. This is my perpetual name throughout all the generations. What an astonishing condescension for God, again, the infinite, eternal, illimitable God of the universe, to identify himself with three human beings, a family, a single family, I mean, I suppose we do this at times. We do identify ourselves with reference to another person. I might say I'm Violetta's husband or I'm Richard's son. Okay, but, but generally we don't say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm John's neighbor and Susanna and Dennis. I'm the neighbor of John, Susanna, and Dennis. That would be an unusual thing, right? People would say, why does he identify himself with regards to his neighbors? But that's what God does. For some, again unusual, it's not unusual, it's actually a profound reason that we're going to get to in a moment. God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, just a, a word on this and a word about the Yahweh thing as well. Why? Well, because it was necessary. It was necessary, and here's why it was necessary. Now, one of the sort of difficulties, one of the tricks that, that is needs to be borne in mind if we're going to understand Scripture as it should and could be understand, understood is that we have to enter into the historical flow and the contextual narrative of Scripture as it comes to us. One of the, the problems, one of the pitfalls that it's very easy to fall into is to read the Bible or any historical document anachronistically. Now, the word anachronistically is a long, fancy word that just means reading something out of its time, its proper context and time. 
And so what we fail to do sometimes is to go back to the beginning of the story and move through the story sequentially and chronologically, all the while attempting to suspend our knowledge of where the story is going. Yeah, yeah, we know how the story turns out. We know the New Testament. We have the writings of Paul. Okay, fair enough. But Abraham doesn't have that. Isaac doesn't have that. Jacob doesn't have that. And Moses doesn't yet have that. So what we need to learn to do, if we're going to be good and responsible students of the Bible, is to, insofar as it's possible, go back and try to move through these narratives in real time and understand why God is doing what he's doing when he's doing it and suspend our knowledge of where the story ends up. I use the illustration in one of the uh, presentations across the way of watching a movie that you've seen before, maybe a favorite movie. I have a movie, uh, several movies, but that I like to see over and over again. And one of my favorite things to do is to invite people that I know and love to watch one of my favorite movies if they've never seen it before. And I spend the, most of the movie watching them, not watching the movie. Because I just love, I, 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 you're going to love the, you're going to, you're going to love this part. It's great. And, and it can be a little frustrating when people are not getting it. I'm like, didn't, did you hear that? Let me rewind that for you because I think that was a really, right? You know what I'm talking about here, right? Because maybe they're texting, maybe they're inattentive, maybe they're sleepy. They're not getting the, how, and, and too many people will come to the end of one of my favorite movies and they'll say, oh, that was really great. I like the end part where the guy gets the girl. Yeah, of course you like that part. It's the best part. But did, did you see the lead up? It was the tension. It was the drama. It was the, it was the, the, uh, the lack of conf- sure, uh, certainty that it would turn out that way. Yeah, I didn't really get that. But I like the end. Okay, great. But you would have liked it so much more if you could have, for lack of a better term, just paid attention, moved through the movie in such a way that you're, you're progressing with the plot line. Okay, that's what's happening here. The world of Abraham, the world of Isaac, and the world of Jacob is not a monotheistic world. The world that we live in today, possessing as we do the entire Bible in canonical form, is a world where we are aware of this robust monotheism that was bequeathed to the Jews and passed on to us as Christians as well. We know there's one true God, the Creator God, that that there are no other gods. All the other gods, in air quotes, are imposters or counterfeits. But that's not Abraham's world. Abraham lives in a world where there are many gods and divine powers and deities, and those deities were very often associated with either families or geography. So you'd have the God of those people, the God of that tribe, the God of that family, the God of that mountain, the God of that valley, the God of this river. All of these different kinds of gods, and now we can begin to understand why God would identify as I'm the God of those people. This was the language of the day because there were so many quote-unquote gods on offer. Is Abraham a a, a monotheist? No, he is not. Is Isaac a monotheist? No, he is not. Even Jacob is not yet a monotheist because one of the remarkable things that happens after the Jacob's ladder experience that we just quoted moments ago in Genesis 28, when, when God gives this great promise of land and descendants to Jacob, he says this. He says, if you do all this stuff that you, says you will do, that you say you will do, if you protect me from my brother Esau who's pursuing me and you bring me back to this place, then you will be my God. Clearly, we see here that he does not yet know what we will later know through Moses. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You will have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. So we have to move through the narrative with the understanding, the contextual understanding that the people themselves had at the time. And so for God here to say in Exodus 3, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob... This is who I am and will always be. It alerts us to the fact 
that God has identified himself with these people because this, these are the people and this is the family to whom he has made a promise. A what word did I say, everyone? A promise. So we might say that this way. God's voluntary, and we might even say enthusiastic identification with Abraham and his descendants is both remarkable and revealing. It's one of those things that we can just become accustomed to. But I remind you again that the infinite, eternal, illimitable God of the universe identified himself with three human beings, a dad, a granddad, and a son. It is absolutely astonishing. Now, why them? Why Abraham? Why Isaac? Why Jacob? Because again, it all goes back to a promise. And here's my, here's my thesis, that this promise, this Abrahamic promise, is the hinge on which the whole narrative of Scripture pivots. And let me just sort of illustrate that here with my Bible. I've got my new preaching Bible here. It's got my name on it, spelled correctly, which is nice. So I'm just going to open my Bible here to Genesis chapter 12. So I'm now holding in my hand two parts. I've divided the Bible into two parts. This really tiny little part, which is just the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and then this large part, which is Genesis 12 to Revelation 22. So this is like one-tenth of one percent of the Bible, and this is the rest of it. This is 99.9 percent. .9%. Okay, so far so good. I'm making the case here that this, this, all of this right here, the 99.9% .9 is a single story, a single narrative, and that that narrative is the story, the narrative of God making and keeping a promise to a man named Abraham and to his descendants, that the whole story of Scripture is that story right there. Now, you might ask, and I'm glad you did, well, what's the first 11 chapters? What's this part here? Okay, so glad you asked. Let's talk about that. So the structure of Genesis, Genesis is, has 50 chapters in it. And the first 11 chapters, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, basically covers in very broad strokes early anthropological history. And in the broadest of strokes, Moses basically says this. There was creation, Genesis 1 and 2. There was a fall, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. There was a flood, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. Then you have the post-flood post world, Genesis 10. And there was a tower, Genesis 11. So in four broad brushstrokes, Moses covers some 2,000-ish years of human history, depending on exactly how you do the chronology, maybe as much as 2,500 years. But in round figures, 2,000 years of history, God through Moses effectively says, there was creation, there was a fall, there was a flood, there was a tower. Now, Compare that with, for example, U.S. history. Okay, the United States is a relatively young country, 250-ish years, almost. And if you took the number of books that have been written just on U.S. history, popular books, biographies, autobiographies, histories, or you just took all the books that have been written only on U.S. history, and you stacked them all up in normal-sized font, you couldn't put them in this giant auditorium. Uh, it, the number of books that have been written just on Thomas Jefferson or just on George Washington would take up a large portion of this room, right? N never mind all the academic papers and the research. In other words, the point is this. Clearly, God, through Moses, is not setting out here to give us an exhaustive modern history-style treatment of early earth. No, no, no. He basically says there was creation, Genesis 1 and 2. There was a fall, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. There was a flood, Genesis 6 to 9. And there was a tower, Genesis 11. That's it. We long for more. There is so much more that we would love to know about the early earth, the primordial earth. But, but, but Moses is not inclined to disclose this to us because that's not the story that Moses is primarily telling. This first part here, this first 11 chapters, as important as they are, is what we would probably call today in our modern language, a prologue. 
a prologue. And the word prologue just comes from the word pro, uh, words prologos. It just means the part before the part, the part before the thing, right? So this is a, a little bit to set the table, okay? There was a creation, yes. There was a fall, yes. There was a flood, yes. And there was a tower. But as soon as Moses gets to the story of Abraham, he, as it were, slams on the brakes and slows down and goes to, and at times, excruciating detail about Abraham and his family. In 39 chapters, he now covers only about 250 to 300 years of human history. And, and we get the, the detail becomes so granular that, for example, on one occasion, we are told a, a story that takes up quite a little bit of space about two twin brothers arguing over soup. <laughs> Apparently, this is really important that we understand what's the, 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 the particulars of the lentils and what's going on here. And they were red. Right? This is important, apparently. Okay, so now our, our point here is to say this. The structure, what we might call the architecture of Genesis, alerts us to the fact that Moses thinks he's telling a certain story. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. It's not just the story that Moses is telling. It's the story that all the prophets are telling. It's the story that all the Old Testament writers are telling. And it's the story the New Testament writers are telling, too. And it's the story of Abraham and his descendants. Now, when we actually get to Genesis chapter 12, and Moses has slammed on the brakes and slowed way down to get into granular detail about this, we're introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. You can make a case that Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is the most important passage in the entire Old Testament, with the possible exception of maybe Genesis 15, 6. I mean, there's just a, there'd be, you know, four or five passages in the Old Testament that would vie for the most important Old Testament passages. And I'm going to make my case here that this is the most important Old Testament passage, because it sets the stage for everything that follows. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a, what everyone? Land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Now, two quick observations about this passage. We could dwell a long time on this, but we're going to be quick. The first thing I want to note is that this Abrahamic, embryonic promise from which the whole fountainhead of Scripture flows begins with two words. Does anybody remember? What were those two words? God said to Abram, get out. Okay, so this motif, this idea I can see right there, an exit sign, exit, 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 exit from the Latin ek, out. Right? So, so the Exodus, there's actually a book, of course, called Exodus, coming out. This motif of God calling us out of something and into something, out of something and into something, out of something and into something, is the story not only of Scripture. It's a saturative motif in the text of Scripture. You get to the book of Revelation, for example, Revelation 18, and God says, come out of her, my people. I mean, we could, if time allowed, we could just raise hands, and in this room right now, in probably five minutes, we could come up with not less than ten instances of Exodus as the major motif in a given story in Scripture. God's calling out, God calling out, God calling out, God calling out. And in a way, by, by way of analogy, our lives are very often stories of Exodus. We literally come out of our mothers, and then we come out of childhood. We come out of adolescence. We come out of young adulthood. We come out of singleness, m many of us, most of us. We come out of childlessness. We're, we're in a continual state of moving out of something into another thing. Come out. But when God said to Abram, come out, get out of your country from the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, what we today call Mesopotamia. 
Mesopotamia just means the land between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates River, and Abraham moves back west under the advisement of God, the invitation of God. This was not a mere geographical location like you might locate from Redlands to San Francisco or from Oklahoma to Texas. This is an invitation to come out, of, out from and away from all that was familiar to Abraham, including and especially, but not limited to, his gods and the deities of that region. I told you earlier that the, the gods of the ancient Near East were tied very often to families, to clans, to tribes, to people, and to geographical locations. And so when God calls Abraham out, it's not a mere relocation program. It's come out from what is familiar to you, come out of that place move back west, and there's a lot of significance there that we're not going to get into, from east to west, back to a land that I will show you. That's the first thing I want to note, is that Exodus motif. The second thing I want to note is that we might fairly accuse God of a kind of favoritism here in the calling of Abraham. We might say, well, wait a minute, why Abraham? Or Abram at this point, his name has not yet been changed. Why? Why? But we might fairly accuse God of that if the last clause in the promise didn't exist. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. We might say, well, this is a little unfair. This doesn't strike me as exactly equitable. But watch the last line. And in you, say this with me if you would, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay. Effectively, what's happening in Genesis 12 is that God is beginning the reversal of the curse of Genesis 1 to 11. I want to say that again. Effectively, what's happening in Genesis 12 is the beginning of the reversal of the curse of Genesis 1 to 11. What's the curse of Genesis 1 to 11? Genesis 3, we could summarize the problem of Genesis 3 as vertical alienation from God. This is the problem of Eden. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Alienated from God, hiding from God, vertical alienation. But this is not the only axis upon which human beings experience alienation and isolation. We are also living in the Genesis 11 world, which is a world of, of horizontal isolation and alienation. That's the post-Babel world. It's a world of fragmentation that began along linguistic and geographical grounds, but then eventually became cultural, religious, racial, etc. That's the world we live in now. The world that we live in today in 2024 is the post-Genesis uh, 3, the post-Genesis 11 world, the post-Babel world, where there's people that look like me and people that don't look like me, people that talk like me and people that don't talk like me, people that live where I live, people that don't live where I live, people that think like me, people that don't think like me. We have all of these divisions in this world in which we live. It's the us and the them world of Babel. This, this us and them can, can be racial, it can be economic, it can be, it can be educational, it can be national, it can be geographic, whatever. That's the world that we live in. And what God is effectively saying he's going to do here, that's what we just read there in Genesis 12, 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here's effectively what God is saying. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The world was broken, vertically broken, horizontally broken, and God shows up in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to fix the world. I'm going to fix the world vertically and I'm going to fix the world horizontally. I'm going to, to even further reduce it, I'm going to put the world back together spiritually and I'm going to put the world back together socially. I'm going to fix the world. Can somebody say Amen. And so it's on that turn that we can no longer accuse God of favoritism because what God was doing in and through and to Abraham was just that Abraham was the means or the vehicle through which he was going to bless the whole world. 
And so even though we're only very early in the story, I mean, we're just barely getting started in the story, we can safely surmise that God's promise to Abraham and his descendants is not regional and exclusive. It's, what word? Global and inclusive. Friends, God is not doing a small thing. God is doing a big thing. Can somebody say amen? God's not just doing a small, regional, parochial thing. What God says to Abraham is, I'm doing a big thing. I'm doing a global thing. In fact, if we panned out still further, God is doing a cosmic thing. God is putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. How is he going to do it? He's going to do it through a promise that he makes to a man named Abraham and to his descendants. Now, if we go from the Old Testament to the so-called New Testament, we come to Matthew chapter 1. First book, first chapter, first verse of the New Testament, so-called New Testament. In your paper Bible, if you have one, there's only one uninspired page in it. If you have a paper Bible, you open it up, you just go find Matthew chapter 1, and there will be an uninspired page in your Bible. You don't believe me? Go look at it. It'll say New Testament on it. Now, my Bible doesn't say that because I tore that page out. (laughs) I tore it out because it doesn't belong there, right? Now, you might not be so cavalier as I was and tear it out, But you can at least fold it over so you don't have to look at that icky, uninspired page because God didn't write that. The prophets didn't write that. The publishers wrote that. And the problem with that page that says the New Testament is that it introduces into the mind a discontinuity between the so-called Old and the so-called New Testaments. The Old Testament's old. It's antiquated. It's obsolete. It's dusty. Who wants the Old Testament when you can have the shiny New Testament? No, no, no. That page doesn't belong there because there is continuity between the so-called testaments. God is not telling two stories. God is telling one story. God doesn't have two families. He has one family. God doesn't have two promises. He has one promise. Now, when you look at the very first verse of the so-called New Testament, it says this. This is the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham. In other words... What, what the author of, of the Gospel of Matthew was saying is, you had better understand the backstories of, Moses, of Abraham and David if you want to understand the story of Jesus, what he's doing, why he's doing it. Now, to make it even better and more accessible to us, Matthew does a really helpful thing. He gives us effectively a rubric, a cheat sheet for understanding the Old Testament. Uh, this isn't David Asherick's rubric. It's not Randy Roberts' rubric. It's not Ty Gibson's rubric. This is an inspired rubric for understanding the Old Testament, and it's so helpful. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. After going through a series of begats, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, he says this by way of summary. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile in Babylon to the Messiah. Oh, this is extremely helpful. Matthew basically gives us the Old Testament in three chapters. Abraham to David, check. David to the captivity, check. The captivity to the Messiah, check. And any Jewish reader would immediately immediately detect what we might not so quickly detect. And that is that a 14, a 14, and a 14 is 777777 which anticipates the seventh seven, which anticipates the year after the seventh seven, which is the Jubilee. 
And the Jubilee was, was a, uh, the grand and glorious climax of the whole Hebrew calendar where the land was returned to its ancestral owners and slaves were set free and all debts were forgiven. Any Jewish reader would immediately detect 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations has us you know, significantly and precipitously on the edge of a great revelation. And that revelation is Jesus who shows up as the embodiment and the incarnation of Jubilee. And I don't have time to develop that. But here we might graph that like this. So here's Matthew's chapters. Abraham to David. That is a discreet and understandable chapter for these reasons. The promise of land and descendants to the realization of land and descendants under a united monarchy and a godly king David. Okay, so you can understand why that would be a discreet chapter. Abraham to David. Okay, but then from David to the captivity is a remarkable chapter because... After David, who was, of course, the second king in the united monarchy, you get Solomon, which was sort of the maximal height of Israel under a united monarchy, and then the wheels come off the chariot very quickly, and within, you know, a few, a couple centuries, a few centuries, you are back in Babylonian captivity, and Babylon is where Mesopotamia is. So, so really, what you have here in this story is that the story is starting over. You went from without land to the promise of land to a king, but now you're back to where you started. But the promise is that there will be a new king and not a faulty, frail, feeble king like David was, wonderful though he was at certain points in his, in his life, but the king of kings and lord of lords, Messiah. This is not my understanding of the Old Testament. I didn't come up with this. It's not some innovation that I crafted. Matthew's telling us how to understand the Old Testament. Abraham to David. The promise of land to the realization of that land. David to the captivity. The loss of the covenant promise. But captivity to the Messiah. The realization of the promise to an even greater degree. And that's what I want to show you here. I don't say this condescendingly or professorially because I don't want to sound like I'm an important person and I have important things to say. But I do think this is true. That you can't fully or really understand the story of Jesus without first at least broadly knowing the story of Abraham and his family. This is the story that Matthew thinks he's telling. It's the continuation of the story of David and of Abraham. And many examples in the New Testament could be marshaled to this effect, but I want to share with you one of my favorites. This encounter with Jesus and the Roman centurion is a top five encounter for me, in all of Jesus' interactions with people. I would say, it's a, for me, it's on my top five list, right up there with Jesus and the woman at the well. I, I, I never fail of loving this story, preaching on this story, coming back to this story again and again, because there's so many layers and there's so much beauty here, and I want to just share it with you very briefly. So I'm in Matthew chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading in verse 5. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things about this story is the, the reflexive way which Jesus just, as soon as there's a need, as soon as there's an invitation, he just instantly responds. There's not, you know, a, a, let, me, let me counsel with my people, let me see what we can work out, maybe, no, no. It's just, oh, there's a need, there's a desire, somebody wants me, somebody, I will come. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Verse 8, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Okay, after the Roman centurion finishes saying this, saying this, Jesus reaches down, picks up his jaw off the ground, 
and he reattaches it to his skull. He puts his mandible back on his... Now, you say, how do you know that? Well, because if you look at the actual text here, it says, when Jesus heard this, what the Roman centurions say, he marveled. Okay, what are some synonyms for marveled? He was... He was surprised. Okay, great, great. He was... He was astonished. He was incredulous. He was gobsmacked. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Now, this is another example of reminding ourselves to go back and read the story through in real time, to suspend our knowledge of everything else insofar as it's possible and try to read the story in real time. Jesus at this point has laid aside his, the, the, the prerogatives of divinity, his omniscience, his omnipotence. So he's hearing this in real time. And when this Roman centurion says, no, 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 no. Now, I, I don't need you, you, you don't have to come to my house because I understand that you're a man of authority like me. I'm a man of authority. I just tell people to go. They go. I tell them to come and they come. You can just speak the word. Jesus hears this and Matthew records, he marveled. He was thrilled. His heart leapt with joy when he heard this. And notice what he says. He turns to the crowd that was with him. It says here, he marveled and said to those who followed. Now, this is still early on in Jesus' ministry. The Sermon on the Mount has just happened in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So Jesus did have a smallish crowd following him. Of course, throughout his ministry, as he grew, his popularity grew, the crowds would get larger and larger, and this would eventually become problematic for Jesus. But at this point, there was still a smallish crowd that was with Jesus, perhaps several dozen, maybe as many as a hundred. Jesus turned his attention to those that were following, and he says these words, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, how Jesus could say such a thing would have been astonishing to the people that were listening in. No one would have put these words on the lips of a first century or first, second, or third century Messiah. One of the reasons that we can be confident here today that Jesus is the Messiah is that no one could have written this story. Not just this story, but no one could have written Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No one could have invented this story. The uninventability of Jesus is one of the most profound arguments for Jesus and his authenticity. Nobody would have put these words on the mouth of the first century Jewish Messiah. No way. To unambiguously, enthusiastically, and incomparably affirm a Gentile, a Roman, a Roman soldier, and a leader of Roman soldiers, you've got to be kidding me. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. And he doesn't just say, hey, well done. Yeah, you know who I am. He compares the, and this is the, this is the knife twisting part. He compares the faithfulness of the Roman and the faith of the Roman to his own Jewish countrymen. And he says, there's nothing like this in Israel. I mean, Jesus at this point is almost 30 years old. He has seen a lot. He's heard a lot. I mean, at the age of 12, he was giving lectures to the scholars in the temple. I mean, he knows things. Well, as if that's not enough, Jesus, of course, if you read the subtext here, Jesus senses the, you know, the embarrassment, the piercing nature of what he has said to the crowd that's there. And so he further twists the knife. Jesus says, and I say to you that many, what word, everyone? Many, many not a few not a, not a paltry, you know, small group. No, many will come from the east and the west, which is just a first century Jewish way of saying not from here. Not people that look like us. Not people that talk like us. Not, not from here. Many will come from the east and from the west, from the larger Mediterranean world. Many of those people 
will come. And as, as if that's not enough, they will sit down and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here is effectively saying, if you find this affirmation of the Roman centurion astonishing, just wait till you see what the new heaven and the new earth is going to look like. You're not ready for it. Now, now, this was astonishing to the people that heard it, but all Jesus here is doing is in his own way recapitulating the Abrahamic promise. That I will bless you and you will be a great blessing and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If the people that were following Jesus there had been, you know, in that moment sufficiently familiar with the Abrahamic promise, they would have said, of course, Jesus, because that was always the plan, not regional and exclusive, but global and inclusive. Amen and amen. amen. Following the dispersion of Babel in Genesis 11, the, the world, the broken Humpty Dumpty world of Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, God promised to bring the world back together through his promise to Abraham. This he has done and is doing in Jesus the Messiah, himself a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Paul, and we'll get into this later in one of my presentations, and I think Ty touches on this as well. Paul effectively says this in, Gal in Galatians 3 verse 8. Scripture foresaw. Uh, a synonym here would be anticipated. Saw in advance. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. Them. Those people. God would justify them by faith, and announced the gospel, the good news in advance to Abraham, and this is incredible, when he, and then he quotes from Genesis 12, verse 3, when he said, in you all the nations will be blessed. Can somebody say amen? amen. Now, what's incredible about this is that Paul, if, if you watch carefully here, Paul just said, Paul just said that the gospel, the good news, is that God is going to save the world. That's what he said. He said he announced the gospel in advance. And then he quotes Genesis 12, 3. Very often, we privatize religion to the degree that um, I come to the garden alone and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. Now, I'm not here taking a shot at personal devotions, but very often, and you'll, if I tell you this, you'll never be able to unsee it if you listen carefully to what I say here. Many of our praise songs and hymns are sung in the singular. But the New Testament is written not to the singular, to the plural, to the collective. And he walks with us, and he talks with us, and he tells us that we are his own. Amen and amen. It's just absolutely amazing here. The gospel is the good news that God is going to save everyone who will consent to being saved. Is that awesome or what? Yes, Jesus is the hero of the story, and many know this is true, but we don't know why Jesus is the hero to the story. And what we mean by that is you can have the right answer, Jesus is the right answer, but why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he say what he said? Why did he, and we're going to get into that in my next presentation, tomorrow actually. Or is it tomorrow? I think it's Sunday. Tomorrow's Sunday, right? Today is the Sabbath. <laughs> Jesus as a descendant of Abraham is himself the means, the vehicle by which God kept that early gospel promise of a fruitful land and numberless descendants to fill it. This has been, and this is the very end here, this has been the promise from the beginning. This has been the very same promise from the beginning. We see it in Genesis chapter 1. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And what are those three words? Fill the earth. God said the same thing to Noah when he came off the ark. So God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and 
fill the earth. He says the very same thing to Noah just a few verses later. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. In one of the many places where God recapitulates the promise to Abraham, he says it like this. Yahweh said to Abram, lift up your eyes and now look from the place where you are. Look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. For all the, what's our word? Land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. God uses a number of metaphors in Genesis. He says it's like the stars, it's like the sand, it's like the dust. These are all metaphors to say an innumerable multitude. An innumerable multitude. Genesis chapter 3, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. God's covenant promise, this is how we began. This is the very first slide I put up. And here we come right back to where we began. God's covenant promise of land and descendants to Abraham is the hinge on which the whole narrative of Scripture swings. Can you say amen? amen. From the beginning, God's desire has remained unchanged. What is that desire? To have a flourishing people joyfully and loyally inhabiting a fruitful and safe land. Or you might summarize that like this, a godly people in a goodly land. God's desire is to have a godly people. What do we mean by a godly people? Simple. A people that bear God's image. And we bear God's image in a variety of ways, don't we? We bear God's image, image socially and familially and morally and intellectually and physically in all of the wonderful ways that we are made to bear the image of God. God is looking for a people that bear His image in a land that is safe and secure where they are free to flourish this is why over and over again you have that plaintive refrain in the Old Testament, I will be their God and they will be my people. A godly people in a goodly land. And I'm just going to give you a little, a little taste of where we're going in part of this. Just a little trailer version. If you fast forward all the way down to the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, John in vision sees the new heaven and the new earth land. And do you know what he sees? He sees so many people in that land that he says they could not be numbered. Amen. This is the grand climactic fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Land and descendants. And they all got there through a descendant of Abraham, a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Jesus himself said it like this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the familiar New King James Version. But some of the other translations tap into what's really on offer here with that phrase, the earth. The complete Jewish Bible says, how blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. And I really like the Good News translation. Happy are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. Everybody in this room and everybody outside of this room wants basically the same thing. Now, there'll be variations on a theme, and I, I don't know most of you, and so I can't speak with specificity about how you might want it. But what we basically want in the world is to be safe. We want a place where we can be safe, where, where we are free from harm. We want a place where we can be surrounded by those that love us and those that we love. We want a place to be free, a place to flourish, a place to live in peace with one another and with God. And this is where the story is going. Jesus said that this is where the story is going, that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Friends, God has a great plan for you. Amen? Yes. A godly people in a goodly land.
God has a great plan for your children. If you have children, I know what you want for your children. The same thing I want for my children. Happiness, peace, flourishing, prosperity, love. Well, this is what God wants for all of his children. God has a plan for your neighbors. Amen? God even has a plan for your enemy, believe it or not. I love that G.K. Chesterton quote, by the way. That's so good. God tells us to love our enemies because, you know, they're the same as our friends very often. God has a plan for the whole world. God is going to put the world back together. God is not doing a small thing, friends. God is doing a big thing, an enormous thing, a global thing, a cosmic thing. God is doing an unbelievable thing, and not just in Southern California. God is doing an unbelievable thing in the world. Do you believe that? So do I. So do I. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we believe the seemingly unbelievable. We receive the astonishingly good news that even though the world is broken, Father, both externally to us and internally to us, Father, war and conflict is not just something that we know external in the various military campaigns that have littered human history, but Father, we know the internal war of guilt, of sin, of shame, of embarrassment, of failure. And Father, today we receive the good news that you can fix us, that you can fix the world, that you can fix our families, that you can fix our addictions, that you can fix us. Father, here we are at Loma Linda, a place where, where people learn how to fix people. And Father, we believe that you are the great fixer, you are the great healer. And we pray, Lord, that you would heal us, and then that through us you would help others to heal, and that through them you would help still others to heal. Father, today we receive the great good news that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everybody say amen and amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.